Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Have you ever been curious about the difference between the female brain and the male brain? Well, I have for a long time. In this edition of Radio Curious, we'll visit with Dr. Luann Brizendine, a neuropsychiatrist at the University of California in San Francisco. In 2006, she wrote a book called The Female Brain, and in 2010, she wrote a book called The Male Brain, very different books about very different genders of our human species. I spoke with Dr. Brizendine by phone from her office in San Francisco, California on March 21st and began our conversation about the male brain, asking her about her chapter, Seeing the World Through Male-Colored Glasses. I run the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic at, at UCSF, and that's a place where I see both uh, women and then also couples. And what I found in my clinical practice is that the women coming in um, really you know, had their own point of view, as did the men, and that what I felt I could do in the male brain, and the reason I actually took it on to write it, is I wanted to help my women patients see the world through a man's eye or through their partner's eyes in order to get a better perspective on um, what he was thinking, what he was doing, so she could develop more compassion for um, the way he might be thinking about things that she would see from a different perspective. So the hue of the male colored glasses, in my experience, there are many different hues from my personal experience in visiting with other men. Well, I think that there's, as, as you talk about anything that has to do with human nature, and anytime you lump people into any category, you lump people into a category, the age over 50-year-olds or over 60-year-olds or male or female, anytime you lump people into categories, you are going to get a huge spectrum, of course. If you think of a bell-shaped curve, um, you're going to at least get that kind of diversity. So, obviously, different men will have different hues to their glasses, um, but I think that just if you can teach someone a couple of principles, then they can go from there and modify them um, as needed to fit the individual. So presumably the hues are controlled by vasopressin and testosterone, which change throughout the male brain from infancy through death, through a long life of, let's say, 90, 100 years. We know that we all start off with basically a very similar brain from in utero, in the fetal life. We get the females, we get an XX dose of chromosomes and um, the male gets the XY. And by about eight, eight weeks of fetal life, the tiny testicles in the male start pumping out huge amounts of testosterone that marinates the brain, changing it into the male brain. So that means that areas are fertilized to grow larger, certain of them like in the hypothalamus, the area for sexual pursuit in the male brain ends up being two to two and a half times larger in the human male brain um, than in the female, and also predisposes um, lots of the circuitry to be ready to take on male activity and seeing the world and behaving as a male from the time of birth on. Can you be specific about how those changes are manifested in male behavior? So what we know is that um, from the time of one month old to up to nine months to 12 months old after birth, in the male brain, they, um, 
there's a time of life called infantile puberty, and the testicles continue to pump out huge amounts of testosterone close to the adult male level during that stage of life. And we think of that as kind of the finishing, the finishing touches to the male brain that the hormones are going to do. These give, um, and of course, then the female from age one month to up to about 24 months old uh, as an infant has huge amounts, adult female levels of estrogen that come out from her ovaries that make the finishing touches to the female brain. So what we, we don't know that much about that period of the human's life, although what scientists believe is that that puts the brain in the situation to make it have uh, a higher likelihood of behaving like a male or female. For example, lots of behavioral studies and observational studies that have been going on for the last 35 or 40 years of, of infant female and male behavior and um, little girl and little boy behaviors have observed, um, for example, the rough-and-tumble play that you'll watch with little boys of actually all, lots of animal species, but human boys tend to chase around, tackle each other, and play rougher than the average girl, although about 10% of girls uh, will play rough like boys, and about 10% of boys will, will not play rough. So you've got that, um, that 10% difference that we see throughout life uh, on different parameters. So I think that all, that's what the hormones are doing, we believe, is setting up the brain of the male or the female to have the propensity, likelihood, to behave in a more typical male or typical female fashion. Now, remember, culture and the way that we're raised has about 50% of the effect, so it's very robust. Uh, in terms of how we learn to behave. We are trained to behave in a certain way, and part of how we behave in gender-specific ways comes from how we're raised, what the school system expects, what our culture expects, and we learn to behave in all kinds of gender-specific ways based on how we're raised. But the hormones and the genes get the brain set up to... Um, have a more likelihood of behaving in the male or female way. We don't teach little boys, for example, particularly to do to to, to like um, action heroes or to like uh, explosions or to like uh, having guns or weapons and playing playing um, um, in teams that uh, are fighting off the enemy. Little girls don't tend to do that, and no one has really taught them to do that. Do you have any considerations on the evolutionary development of the male versus the female, particularly the male, since they don't, we don't care for children as directly as you uh, women do? So one of the, um, the hypotheses of evolutionary biologists is that the reason that the male and female brain have these different um, propensities in terms of their behavior is that the female is required to care for helpless infants. You know, from, from birth up till around two years old, baby little children or humans can't take care of themselves, and there's a huge amount of necessary infant care that the mother has to do to keep the helpless infant alive. So in the human species, because of the um, very immature age that the, the baby is actually born, we have to have 
certain behaviors that really are not left up to choice but are hardwired and anything that's necessary for really the survival of the species, you will find that those behaviors are not left to the person's cognitive decision-making. They're more stimulated by the hormones to be behaviorally much more likely. For males, for example, the testosterone and their brain circuitry makes it much more likely that they will pursue females and that they will... um, and that hormones will activate those systems. So it's not left to um, a lot of personal choice, as in caring for a helpless infant. The birth um, process requires lots of a release of a hormone called oxytocin. That's not oxycontin, it's oxytocin. It's a peptide hormone that um, is in the brain that stimulates the uterus to contract, push the baby out, but it also has behavioral effects in that it primes the female brain for maternal behaviors and for bonding with the baby um, and for um, protecting uh, the baby with what's called maternal aggression. So those things that are, cannot be left to choice, otherwise our species would not have survived, are things that you find subterraneanly, shall we say, are not left to choice and have to do with uh, hormones that... Um, Um, stimulate or prime the brain for certain behaviors in the male and female being different. The male, on the other hand, has been required to protect the nest, protect the female and the um, helpless infants to provide for food, uh, shelter. And so those behaviors that are propensities for males have been not left to chance by Mother Nature, shall we say. In your section, flirting is a contact readiness sport, I read it that you're talking more about Western culture and more about the 20th and 21st century. But I'm wondering what your conjecture, again, your considerations would be if we go back 5,000 years in terms of uh, flirting, French kissing, other um, behaviors that lead to procreation. Well, I think you've, you've hit on a very interesting area, actually, because mating behaviors, flirting behavior, courtship behaviors have very um, interesting and, and, and unfold in a certain way in different species. And we know from the animal kingdom um, some of the quite elaborate um, male behaviors that are courtship and are very hardwired um, to occur. Some of those um, are thought to also be true in human males in terms of courtship behavior. So that in every culture, um, it's thought that the male will do certain types of things to indicate that he's interested, to indicate that he has resources um, to the female. If that's um, and we have some primitive cultures that are alive today on the planet that have been studied by anthropologists and um, cultural psychologists that um, clearly males will show that they, they have, you know, certain beads or certain um, abilities or be able to show off their, the, um, the animals that they've hunted and killed. They, there are um, certain aspects of male behavior in terms of courtship that are going to cue females to their level of, of wealth, shall we say, which is a seduction to the female. In our culture, that may be um, wearing a Rolex watch or Gucci shoes for the male or driving a, you know, a fancy sports car. 
those kinds of things are ways that uh, human males in our current culture do those kinds of things to indicate to females that they have lots of resources. That's the 50% of the cultural control in, in the behavior that you mentioned right. earlier. So that the specifics of those things today are culturally created, but the, but the, the propensity to do those things, to do those courtship behaviors, uh, Mother Nature has wired into the system of the male to be um, um, hormonally primed. And, of course, the female, remember, in the teen years and the teen girl brain, which I write about in the female brain book, that the teen girl is starting to be also primed through through that stage of her life, which is a, which is what we call the third stage of massive brain development and circuit circuitry um, formation and pruning. The female has the surges of estrogen that go up to 15 to 20 times what she had with a little girl, and the boys are going up to 20 to 25 times what he has as a little boy of testosterone. So these these sex-specific gonadal hormones are being released by the gonads, marinating the brain, and then turning on behavior circuits for courtship. Females want to be as attractive to males as possible. They want to be pursued by males, so they are looking at every indication. In our current culture, the girls, girls tend to look at um, magazines and models and look at what the standard of beauty for our culture is. In some African tribes still, the standard of beauty has to do with how, how long you can stretch your lips or your ears. And every, the little girls are just waiting to be able to get to the age when they're allowed to do that. So whatever kind of adornment females in that culture um, feel will attract the male they are um, inspired, shall we say, inspired or primed to do by their hormones. Dr. Luann Breseldine, I want to ask you about homosexuality and how this fits in. But before we go there, this is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel, and we're talking with Dr. Luann Breseldine, the author of The Male Brain and The Female Brain. Can you tell us about homosexuality and the variables? Is, is that a hormonal difference, a cultural difference? What's your consideration? Right, so I covered this in the, uh, both in the female brain, the female brain and sexual orientation, and in the male brain and sexual orientation sections of the book. And um, what I've done is co- basically collated all of the um, neurobiological data and research that's been done to look at what the differences may be between gay and straight in both the female and the male. And we have scientists have not to this point found a specific brain area that shows a, a difference. But the, the, um, the assessment is that there are genetic differences and that there are brain circuit differences and that for the most part, you're born with either a same-sex-oriented brain or a opposite-sex-attracted uh, brain. So same-sex-attracted um, boys at the age of puberty when straight boys are starting to look at every female curve or every female breast and find that attractive, same-sex-attracted males will start to find other males' bodies attractive. And same happens, but so it develops and unfolds in puberty at the same stages that it would for a opposite-sex-attracted person. We don't know um, what it is specifically in the brain, their brain circuits, and also being, being um, 
there have been lots of pheromonal studies that test for pheromones that come from females or pheromones that come from males. And same-sex attracted tend to be attracted to the pheromones, which are airborne, airborne hormones that are put out by our sweat glands. So same-sex attracted are, are typically attracted by the pheromones of their own sex, whereas opposite sex are attracted by the pheromones of the opposite sex. Let's talk a minute about the pheromonal attractions and repulsions that people may observe or feel in relationship to... uh, This is in a a heterosexual situation. I've heard that if someone has an unpleasant odor to another individual, that that may be an indicator that their children might not carry the best genetic combination. Right. Well, there have been some very interesting studies that have um, mostly been done by Dr. McClintock for many, many years that look at what's called the MHC, which is the, the type of immune system that you have, is, is controlled by your genes. And there are a variety of those genes that will also make certain pheromonal smells so that if you um, have somebody that is very identical um, or very close to your grouping in your immune system genes, that person is probably very genetically related to you. And um, the interest in that person sexually is suppressed, whereas, and that person won't quote-unquote smell good to you, whereas somebody that has a very different MHC system genes for the, their immune system that are very different from you um, may smell much better. So those tests have been done also. It's called the dirty T-shirt test which is um, they've taken males who work out and sweat a lot in T-shirts, and then they'll put them in um, little containers that have specialized uh, smelling compartments and let, let females then smell them and say which ones they don't like and which ones they like. And what happens is the females will choose the males that are the most genetically different from them um, in terms of their MHC um, immune system. Genes And the thinking in terms of evolutionary biologists on that one is that you don't want something like, the, you know, the European um, families, uh, royal families that all married each other, married first cousins um, throughout, had very sickly children. So you don't want to, some, to marry someone who's got too much of a similar immune system from yours because it's not as adaptive in terms of fighting off various things in the environment that might kill you, that you need a different and a highly varied immune system to fight off. So that brings us into perhaps the past almost 100 years where body odors are altered or masked by uh, potions or deodorants. Right. Yes, I was going to say. So um, one of the one of the, the sad things about the, uh, the the perfume industry and also the um, the deodorant industry is that they cover up those natural smells. I mean, we're not we're not talking body. We're not talking bo in terms of dirty, stinky. You know, um, the 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 bacteria that tend to grow um, when you don't wash. Um, it's a different type of smell that comes from your own sweat glands. So it's a cleaner kind of smell. Um, than than bo is um, so the um, the deodorants don't entirely cover up that smell when they uh, perhaps do it results in loneliness and there's the genetic um, 
a structure, a hard brain wiring for people to avoid isolation and avoid loneliness? Well, the human brains are, um, of course, we're a very, very social animal. And one of the things that's important is that we've lived together in groups for hundreds of thousands of years, of course, and that the protection of the group has been very important to the survival of our species. I mean, not so much now as it was at a different time. But, of course, grouping together and, and being the, the brain circuitry for living in groups and for being sociable and not wanting to be excluded. There are um, certain brain circuits that really have um, a painful reaction almost in the brain when you feel like you're being excluded from a group. Um, so that the normal human brain um, has circuitry that is very, very sensitive and finely tuned to either being accepted by your group or being rejected by your group. Those, that circuitry is very important. In my field, in the field of psychiatry, where we study abnormalities of that, for example, autism, the autistic brain does not have that circuitry that's normal. So there, or Asperger's syndrome does not have that, that circuitry that, that is normal. So that there are different diseases of the brain that we know about that help us understand therefore what the normal human brain circuits are for um, keeping us to avoid loneliness, to seek out the comfort of the group, to seek out being accepted rather than being rejected. When you characterize autism or Asperger's as a disease, do you imply that it's something that can be medically redirected, or do you think it's more of a genetic uh, structure that cannot be redirected or remodeled? Okay, so that's, you're making an important distinction here because just because something is genetic doesn't mean that we can't do therapeutic things that can help the brain remodel or learn to compensate for that. Um, I would say that we've had the best experience with doing that with people with Asperger's syndrome and helping them learn what the social cues are and then learn to behave in response to those cues. So the brain of an Asperger's person can learn to behave in a different way with lots of training. So like anything that we, that we um, have that's a deficit, we can learn to do something that compensates for that. Autism is similar in that um, there are training programs that can help autistic individuals learn to behave differently. It's not a cure, but it is um, training the brain to do compensatory behaviors. So that fits into... Um a discussion you have in the female brain. I, I'm not sure if you mentioned it in the male brain or not, but when we uh, study or become uh, knowledgeable or active in certain areas, uh, the brain develops new cells in those areas of concentration, which then connects to the cultural areas that you spoke of before in the bigger picture. Yeah, I think one, one, one good example that I like to keep in mind is that None of us were born knowing how to play an instrument or play the piano, but if we practice, practice, practice six or eight hours a day for 10 years, for example, the violinists that practice that much, and then get a brain scan of that particular area for playing the violin in the brain and look at that 
compared to someone who does not know how to play that instrument, that area can be between six and eight times larger in terms of the number of cells, the number of connections, and um, also the size of the cells in that brain area. So just like pumping iron does for your muscles, work, work, work on some kind of skill set that we do uh, increases the size of that brain area. Are those skill sets sex-linked, or is it uh, equal in both genders? So, no. Any person that practices, practices, practices some kind of activity can enlarge that part of their brain. And in language development, for people who learn multiple languages from infancy on or develop another language in adulthood, do those function in the same areas of the brain, or are they in divided areas, keeping the content of the language separate? Well, the language systems of our brain are spread out through many, many different areas, of course, of our brain. And the area, the brain, the uh, languages we learn as a child or that we learn before the age of 13 or 14 years old um, are languages that can be um, what we call it, or you can be a native natural speaker without an accent. Those that we learn after the age of 13 or 14, we will speak for the rest of our lives with an accent. Um, uh, which can be distinguished from a native speaker. So it's, there's a time limit on when you can learn a new language and have it be um, encoded in your brain circuits as a, as a natural uh, speaker without an accent. So language development and language learning depends on when you learn it and when you, when you immigrate to a country, um, of course, and learn the language. Before 13, you won't have an accent. After 13, you will. Dr. Luann Brizendine, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. I want to ask you, was there an aha or eureka moment in your life that you could share with us? That got me to study the male and female brain, definitely. When I was in medical school um, at Yale, I um, I thought I was going to go and be an immunologist when I went to medical school, and I um, took my psychiatry rotation, um, on the clinical wards there, and the aha moment was when I was studying and researching the differences in depression and anxiety disorders in um, in humans, and found that anxiety disorders are four to one more common in females, and that depression was two to one more common in females. And that moment, I that just really hit me, and that those started at age 12 to 14 years old to diverge, the male-female diverged. And I just felt like it had to have something to do with the onset of puberty in girls. And that got me interested in studying the, um, the hormones in the female brain. And what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Um, I am very interested at this point in continuing to provide services and continue to look at services throughout the world for um, maternal and maternal maternal and infant mental health. And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? The book that I'm reading right now that I like very much, for those of your audience that's interested in biology and uh, medicine, but that is written in a lively form, shall we say, is The Emperor All, All Maladies, and it's a biography of cancer by Sid Mukherjee, who's a friend of mine and has written a fabulous book for those people who are interested in kind of the history of medicine and science and the biology of cancer.
Well, Dr. Luann Brizendine, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Luann Brizendine is a neuropsychiatrist at the University of California in San Francisco and the founder of Women's and Teen Girls Mood and Hormone Clinic. She's the author of two books, The Female Brain in 2006 and The Male Brain, which she wrote in 2010. The book that she recommends is The Emperor of All Maladies by Sid Mukherjee. All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere to listen, download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. Our email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastat is the associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.